Welcome to another installment of Unraveling Religion. I am your host, Joel Lessies, and it is my great privilege and honor to be with Sarah Hughes today from Rochester, New York. Sarah, how are you? I'm well, Joel. Thank you so much for having me. It's my pleasure. And, and um, you know, these talks are unscripted. And um, I just know that in, in the few conversations that we've had, that, uh, uh, how they say, we vibe. <laughs> right? I like it. Yes. Yeah. So I'm just wondering if you could tell, <laughs> me, tell the listeners a little bit about yourself. Sure. Um, so my name is Sarah Hughes. Um, I am a lifelong resident of this area, um, Rochester in the greater Rochester area. Uh, I have one child uh, biologically. He's 23 years old which is kind of probably dating me a little bit. I'm not going to say how old I am, but um, I have worked in a range of fields over the course of my career, but my primary focus is on young people. I'm self-titled the relationship artist. (laughs) Uh, Yeah. Thank you. That's uh, the core of everything I do is development of relationships um, among and among people and also between people in their places, whether that be within the schools where I work or in the community. I'm recently started looking into different types of social arrangements um, that are more land-based and, you know, cultivating right relationship with nature, more intentional community, um, eco-village types of things, or Um, land back movement things with um, folks that are just kind of reclaiming relationship with the land and working on self-sufficiency and community building that's very specific to um, to place but not so much the kind of I I think we're just very focused on location like cities and things like that but right why are you why have you chosen this as 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 uh, value as priority Oh, I mean, it's all related. So I mean, everything is right. And we'll get into this more as we start talking about religion and spirituality and those sorts of things about connection. I am, I believe that all things are connected. And I think that's the core um, message in all religion really is uh, interconnectedness, interbeing. And um, I think that some of the communities that I'm drawn to currently are just better at demonstrating the interconnectedness of all, not just living things, but all beings, like an animistic approach where we honor the spirit and everything and have relationship that is reciprocal with those things. It's very indigenous in its origin um, in terms of kind of that animistic sensibility, but it just resonates with me. It, it, there's a lot of experiences that I've had in those settings. So what are some of these experiences, these, the, the transcendental experiences, could you share maybe, are there some that come to mind that you, you'd like to share? Or? Well, yes. I mean, just recently, um, this past week, I was able to visit Soul Fire Farm and uh, it's a, an Afro-Indigenous community that has sprung up um, very intentionally uh, through the work of Leah Penniman and her sister, her husband, and their family. And what's special about it is that it's, it's clearly been designed around this concept of reciprocal relationship to land 
of acceptance of the importance of, you know, the critters and the life forms in the soil and rebuilding what was really um, what they call marginal farmland. Like it was not very easy to start Mm -hmm. the farm, but they came in to the situation with a very clear understanding of what they wanted to, to create there. And in addition to rebuilding the soils and creating a no-till permaculture kind of model for growing food in order to feed folks that are living in what they call um, food apartheid. I mean, the food desert has been coined as a thing, right? In especially very urban areas, the more poverty inflicted zones of cities where folks don't have access to fresh food, you know, that's called a food desert by the USDA and other people, but they call it food apartheid because it's, that was designed such that folks wouldn't have access. They created conditions for food to be plentiful and nutritious um, with a long ranging, you know, it wasn't a short-term thing. It wasn't about turning a profit quickly. It wasn't about any of those things. In fact, the profit is not even a a driver at all. Um, It was about creating a community and a place where all of these things could happen to feed the community and also, you know, physically feed them, but also spiritually feed them with teaching around how to be in right relationship with the planet and and specifically in this place. Um, to contribute to and receive from the earth in ways that are physically, emotionally, and spiritually fulfilling. What, what were some of what were, what were some of the feelings that you had that were so? Well, to begin with, I arrived and it was early in the day, and the sun was coming up over the hill, and there was the you know the beams of light just landing on the on the farm um, and just like streaming through the trees and landing on all of the, the buildings and the, in the grass and the hay and the animals and just the sounds of space being, it was, it's in a kind of very rural area. So it's now, there's no, there's no traffic noise. There's no hubbub mm-hmm. <laughs> really quiet, except for little ones running around laughing, like children, dog running around from the moment I walked onto the farm, I felt this peace, you know, a sense of this is like a chosen place. And it was, you know, it's November. We were expecting it to be cold, dark, rainy day. And it ended up being sunny and beautiful and 70 degrees at one point. It was like so warm. Everybody had to take off all their layers and we're down to t-shirts and tank tops. And this, you know, the smell, just the freshness, um, a freshness, to even the things that are decaying there because the cycle is so tangible the cycle of life and death and not it doesn't feel unnatural when you're in a setting like that even though agriculture it's been normalized to have a lot of machines and a lot of like fertilizers and all these additives and things like when people think of farms often what they're thinking of is like a large commercial kind of farm whereas this is just everything's done by hand and everything's done really intentionally and and almost with ritual you know what I mean Um, very fundamental thing that I often talk or share uh, with friends and in conversation is that what we are sorely lacking in our community in our western industrialized community is ritual absolutely yeah and then, so they just build it all into the space. And it's um, like I said, even before 
the day started. So I was there for what they call a work and learn day. Um, and they invite community, you know, volunteers to come in and work on the farm and learn about their practices and learn about their rituals and learn about history um, and their current projects and the things that they're planning going forward. You know, it's very small scale, which is intentional as well. But there's this keen understanding that that people are curious for sure and interested. But even their volunteer their their volunteer programs are set up in such a way that it's it's just really well communicated what the intentions are and what kind of expectations there are. Not in terms of saying you know there's all these strict rules and you need to do X Y Z, but it's more like you know ensuring that everything they do is consistent with the vision uh, that they have and the practices that they committed to. And if you're coming in as a volunteer, you need to commit to those as well. Mm. Um, It just feels like the kind of structure that could replace some of the more destructive things that we have currently going on in the world that um, for many people is all they've ever known and all they've ever seen. And so I want to amplify and center and hold up these alternatives um, so that folks can recognize that we don't have to continue living the way that we do that feels so alienating and so depleting of our of our energy. So on the farm, even just working, I mean, I haven't been as physical as I was, you know, on Tuesday at the farm um, and not being, I mean, I've, I've gone for walks and I've gone out in the world, you know, to do those things through the lockdown part of the pandemic. Um, and recently I went back into, you know, school buildings and things like that for work, but it was like, I was concerned that I wouldn't be physically able (laughs) to do much of what was being asked of me, but I was, and it felt very like, you know, I think a lot of people think too, that like working in this way is just hard toiling, difficult, you know, drudgery work, but you get into a rhythm, especially when there's 30 other people and you're all working together. It felt like community. It felt like, like this Zen flow situation where you just get absorbed in the task and so focused on doing what you're doing, you know, in concert with all these other people and breathing, you know, in a rhythm, everything kind of just fell into like a rhythm that felt very comfortable without my having to force it or like, and I wasn't worried about impressing anybody with how much I could do. It was just like to do exactly what I was able to do, no more, no less. Yeah. And like take a break when you need to take a break. But, you know, we are, we were all, you know, kind of like one unit. Yeah. Um, and we got so much done. It was like astonishing how much work we, we did in five hours. And I was sore afterwards, but in the best possible way. You know how that is. Like when you're, when you're working and doing something that's strenuous, but is clearly connected to purpose and clearly connected to others to the whole, you know, that feeling of, of wholeness, that feeling of connection was just completely tangible. It was just thrilling. And, and to meet people I admire who I've seen, you know, on videos and read books and listened to podcasts and, and watched webinars with these folks that, you know, sometimes we have that tendency too to think of ourselves as being, um, in a different kind of sphere as those folks that we put on these pedestals, but, 
um, just to meet the folks that I had seen and and know that they're exactly who they appear to be. Like there's yeah. no yeah. Um, there's congruence. There's congruence. Yes, exactly. And they were just incredibly warm and welcoming, but also very clear and boundaried about, you know, this is our home and you know, we appreciate the the guests being here and and just expect that, like I said, that there would be an adherence to the principles and the rituals and the practices that were established um, there out of respect and real reverence for, you know, the ancestors and those who stewarded the land prior, you know, in terms of acknowledging the indigenous tribes that had lived on the land. And, and they even have a relationship um, with the, the modern um, progeny of those folks uh, who are now, they, they were displaced all the way to like Wisconsin and but they have a relationship with the tribe and um gave you know right of return for anyone from the tribe who wants to re-inhabit the land it's just like this very congruent level of of appreciation and respect and responsibility that you know even though they own it technically they they acknowledge that that ownership is is not as real as the ancestral the ancestral provenance of the land it feels like they, they're like a model or an example or, or like a way shower for yes. the potential for human potential and community. A hundred percent. Yeah. I mean, I didn't want to leave. <laughs> I had to, but I, I didn't want to. Um, and that's one, of, I mean, I'm going to go visit a few other places early on in the pandemic. Um, I connected with um, an organization called the school for designing a society um, and I did an intensive online course with them, uh, and they're um, affiliated with Patch Adams, uh, who's yep. building a free, film. the free hospital in West Virginia, yeah. the Height Institute. Yeah, so um, fantastic folks. I got to meet and get to know Patch and his wife, Susan, a group of other folks um, who are affiliated with... Um, both Gesundheit and the School for Designing a Society, which was amazing. Patch himself is just incredibly down to earth and cool. And all of the folks there were just incredibly creative, uh, very, again, aligned with a particular kind of vision of connection. Um, a lot of folks, of course, who were interested in healthcare and the kind of ridiculous model that we have in this culture that makes healthcare highly inaccessible. And even when it's accessible, it's often very traumatic and cruel. Uh, unfortunately, we don't really have um, a healthcare system here that's focused on the well-being of, of people and respecting them, them for, you know, knowing their own bodies and minds well enough to, you know, play a part in their healing. Yeah. Um, and so this was an incredible group of folks and many of whom are working on an int- intentional community. And that was another experience that I've had of just like recognizing the reality is there was so much diversity of opinion and thought and experience within the groups. Yeah, um, It's just expressed respectfully. Right. Um, what was alike was this, I think, basic understanding of connection and yeah. that we can't be um, effective in transforming anything from our own lives to our communities, to the world without recognizing that other people um and other beings need to be part of it. <laughs> you know, right. we can't do it alone. Taken into consideration and cared for. 
Right. But I highly recommend that folks look into uh, Soul Fire Farm and the School for Designing a Society. And then one last organization that I want to mention um, is Pachamama Alliance, uh, which I found to be an incredible community, especially through the pandemic of folks who been working for a very long time to bring Indigenous wisdom into the world um, through a partnership with um, uh, some of the um, tribal entities that are located at the headwaters of the Amazon um, around protecting the environment, which I hate even saying the environment because it creates that separation. Like it's a whole like this is the box over here has the environment in it. (laughs) Like we are all in it. We are all part of it. Um, This is our home. This is our home. home. It's our only home. There is no planet B. There was a time when I thought I had to create a lot of things myself. Um, And again, I think that was born out of that structural separation that we are taught to believe in as young people because it's trained into us. Well, that And there's so many things that I've learned, especially working in the world of education, runs so counter. So there's so much we need to unlearn um, in order to free up the space to learn new things um, that are actually aligned with with truth. How they fit into the larger narrative is trying to figure out how to fix the world, mainly because there was so much unhealed trauma in myself. And so the, the isolation that was born out of a sense of distrust of other people, um, it has gradually, um, given way to the understanding that I've never been alone. Um, and that there is tremendous power in recognizing the models that work, you know, to suit the conditions in my particular sphere of influence in my particular place and time. Yeah. But yeah, I think that um, the narrative has been shifting from that sense of, of aloneness mm-hmm. to um, the understanding that there's all this connection out there and that the ideas that I've had, somebody else probably already had them too. And maybe I should look into it um, <laughs> before mm-hmm. I go diving headfirst into um, a whole load of, of tasks. One of the ways that I dealt with that was reading, right? Okay. So, and I was, by five, I was, you know, reading chapter books. And so school was very lonely for me too, just because so much of what was being taught was um, something I already knew how to do. So I kind of spent a lot of time in the back of the room by myself reading books. You know, of course, then the, you know, the schools want to track you, in a particular way and say, Oh, gifted, whatever, which then led to even a stronger sense that I was somehow very different from all my peers. Um, But anyway, so reading though, gave me the sense that, Oh yeah, there's a whole range of experiences and world building and stories that other people have imagined that I can relate to. Um, And then for the ones that I couldn't, I think it gave me a foundation for being incredibly accepting of all different points of view and life experiences. Can, can you identify one or maybe a couple moments of illumination that you've had, maybe through reading or other through uh, introspection or a relationship? When I was an adolescent, 
um, you know, going through all the crazy adolescent stuff, um, which is probably why I'm so drawn to teenagers to this day, because um, that is the most disruptive, confusing time um, of life that I experienced. Um, I, I definitely still relate to teenagers. So I don't I think I must have been 13 ish. Um, I was starting to do some self harming kind of behaviors. I really was very close to deciding that I couldn't live in the world as it was. So I was, I, I was considering taking my own life and I'm like, you know, no, would anybody care? That's kind of how my, my thinking was going. I was like, no one would care. No one would miss me. You know, all of those feelings. Um, and I remember having, um, kind of an internal voice, um, at that point that said, you know, no, you're meant to do things in your life. There are reasons. I actually discovered philosophy long before I knew what it was called. <laughs> oh. um, but I am, yeah. I mean, cause philosophy is the underwriting, you know, worldview behind anything. Right. So it's like, yeah. Um, but I started reading the Bible stories and I was like, okay, I get this. Um, and I started, I visited churches with friends of mine in my household that I consider to be also a big part of my spiritual foundation was a lot of music, a lot of music of all different varieties. I would say, you know, that in a way the Beatles were a religion in my household (laughs) and, and then Christmas and we're coming up on the season, right? I always, my mother loved Christmas music. And so no matter what happened to her in the church, we listened to the Messiah every year was baking cookies with my mother and listening to the Messiah. And then Nat King Cole, and then, you know, a bunch of other, you know, a lot of holiday music, but the Messiah was the the one thing that I knew every single year, my mother would insist would be played throughout the holiday season. And so I was um, able to experience that lifelong love of music that has continued ever since. And then also an, an understanding of the words um, by when I was reading the stories and then I was listening to them say, I'm like, oh, okay, these are the same things. This is Bible verses that they're singing. So the second moment, uh, like that I call my, my grand epiphany that changed my entire life happened in 1999, the Columbine high school massacre took place in April of 1999. And I was a new mom. I was looking at my son. And when the, when the, News broke. Um, I had been, you know, sitting with my infant child and watching the news um, and seeing these children running out of the school um, and the you know, the chaos and the panic. It was, you know, far away in Colorado, but it felt to me like it was happening to me. And yes. I looked at my son and I just felt this tremendous sense of failure to create a world that would be safe for him. Yeah. You know, um, as, I, that, that sounds like a very, uh, both uh, as a highly sensitive person and as an empath, it would make sense that that feeling might arise. Yeah. Um, so for probably two to three months after that, I just, I couldn't shake this feeling of guilt and dread that I had, you know, brought a kid into the, the, to this world that, you know, these 
really shocking. And of course, there was a ton of, you know, media after that, just starting to characterize teenagers as dangerous in these ways that have had resonance ever since in really ugly ways. Several months later, I was in the shower. I have some of my best ideas come in the shower, but this was definitely not just an idea. It was like resounding through my every cell in my body, kind of similarly to when I was younger, but this idea that you are meant to do something very specific with Mm -hmm. teenagers. I heard it very clearly. I was like, okay, what am I, you know, what am I supposed to do? Then literally the next day I saw this documentary film on HBO called City at Peace. And it was about this program in in Washington, D.C. that worked with teenagers from all around the metro area around issues of racism and sexism and classism and religious persecution and gender identity and sexuality. And and I was like, oh, my God. (laughs) And so literally everything in me said that, that is what I'm supposed to do. You know when you know, Sarah. You, you know, know when you know. Yeah. Um, and it took a while, but uh, eight years later, I was able to start an affiliate program here in Rochester of that City at Peace program that originated in D.C. And um, I've been affiliated with them ever since. We're about to get ourselves back on track to start it up again. If I see something that I would like to do, I don't put myself into some artificial time frame or like, you know, create a sense of it has to happen in a certain way or it's a failure. I've realized over the course of my life that there are a great many things that just can't be put in that kind of box, especially when you're talking about, especially life's purpose, meaning impact. Like if you're measuring based on you know, how long it took or exactly how it looked or exactly who bought into it or believed in it or, or said, yes, that's good. I am satisfied with what I've accomplished so far. doesn't mean I'm done. (laughs) That's important to acknowledge yourself. I just think that um, one of the issues that I see, especially working with young people is they're so convinced that it's about comparing Mm. um, and competing that it's very difficult for any of the young people um, that I've worked with to feel like they're, they're okay where they are. And that they're connected because the the comparison by its very nature is a cutting off. It's a, exactly. Exactly. It's a separation. I will say though, that many of the young people I worked with in city at peace, Rochester, which became the possibility project Rochester and many of the young people I've met in other programs, especially in New York City, um, because the program specifically builds an understanding of, of that, that competitive comparative uh, model being counterproductive and a collaborative envisioning of the world you want and working together with others to create it, that that model is protective in many ways, where a lot of the young people that I've worked with in those programs have a very different orientation toward success, which is helpful. But working in the schools in the program where I currently am, so much of the messaging they're getting is win, 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 compete, compete, compete. The second place is still losing, like dumb things like that that just drive me up a wall. And I, I would love to see a wholesale transformation of the education system, but I don't think that's going to happen in the near term, at least 
I'm just hopeful that it'll happen with a replacement and not just because the whole thing is going to collapse in on itself because it's unsustainable. Yeah. And you can see it in the young people that are there um, who are living in that environment and, and being schooled in alternative ways or unschooled even, not even, you know, there's homeschooling, there's unschooling, there's different models. One of the things that I got fascinated with after Columbine too was looking at the educational models that many of our young people are being raised up in and how that contributes to violence yeah. Um, yeah. and um, and the lack of choice. Um, again, I think that um, I, I could relate to the sense of hopelessness that's, that young people who do harm to themselves and others are feeling because I went through that myself, but I, it never occurred to me to hurt anyone else. There are a lot of influences in this culture that tell young people, especially boys, but I will say that I think it's, it's definitely not as gendered today as it maybe was in the past. Um, that if you're hurting, um, hurting other people is some sort of, I don't know. No, uh, I, it, I, actually, it's interesting because I've thought a lot about this, Sarah. I've, I've had my own experiences with um, people who've caused great harm and suffering to me and to others. And um, I've really come to a place to, at least today, that it feels like it's the capacity of a, of a soul, if, if you will, to hold its, its, its obstacles and suffering. This, the less able one is to handle the traumas and sufferings and difficulties and obstacles of life, the more they are to lash out, right? Yeah, I think you're right about that. So I discovered philosophy formally um, in my first year in college. So after I realized I wanted to do City at Peace, I wanted... I needed to figure out how to become qualified, you know, to start a program. And at the time, you said I was a young mom. I was 27 at the time, I think, in my late 20s. And I had dropped out of high school and gotten a GED and I'd worked a bunch of crazy jobs that (laughs) none of which um, were what I was meant to do, of course. But I mean, I learned a lot of transferable skills in those jobs and I'm glad I had them, but I was in no way ready to run a nonprofit program. So I went back to school and went to community college, Monroe Community College here uh, in Rochester, which it was an incredible, great experience. But my first semester, I took an intro to philosophy class. And uh, in that class, I discovered a, a great many things that, you know, that were in my mind for a long time, but felt like, you know, disembodied things like they weren't, <laughs> but suddenly it was like, there was a place that was dedicated to the discussion of these ideas about what is truth and what is justice and what is love and what is, you know, what is right and wrong and like all of this stuff. Right. Um, and uh, also, my first philosophy professor ended up being a really good friend and mentor. So that relationship was, I think, also vital to my recognition um, of the value of studying philosophy as a major, because she was very affirming of my talent and my kind of like my natural philosopherness. <laughs> um, and she was also, um, you know, even though she's teaching philosophy in a secular way, 
very involved in the church community that um, that she introduced me to um, that here in Rochester that has a, a tremendous social justice focus, I thought was really cool because, you know, social justice has always been an area of interest for me. And I, I just, again, didn't realize that there was a lot of organization around it and there were people here um, and elsewhere that I could look to as resources around how to transform harm in the culture to uh, justice and care and well-being um, and connection and love and all the good things, beloved community, as Martin Luther King would say. So yeah, I started studying under her tutelage and then decided to change my major. I I thought I was going to study psychology or behavioral science, that that would be the right, you know, kind of background for starting youth development programs. But I, um, I thought philosophy was better. And then when I was ready to transfer, I was made aware of a peace and justice studies program at St. John Fisher. So that's where I transferred to do the rest of my four-year degree. And of course, when I started there, the St. John Fisher being a Jesuit, you know, historically Christian, you know, foundation college, there was a lot of religion, iconography and influence, you know, on the campus, even though it wasn't specifically <laughs> that anymore, but like, you know, it was, it was, it was definitely present um, on the campus, the influence of, of organized religion. And I took some comparative religion classes, as well as some courses that were in the religion department, philosophy and religion being kind of lumped together often in academia. But one of the courses that I took with with one of the priests who was, you know, also a professor there was called Martin and Malcolm. And it was incredible because it was ways to kind of compare and contrast the philosophies of Martin Luther King with Malcolm X side by side and understanding uh, the Christian theological underpinnings of of Martin's civil rights work next yeah. to the Islamic underpinnings and also the the black nationalist movement underpinnings of Malcolm X. That was a transformative course for me. And it, it really helped me to crystallize my understanding around social justice and working with young people who may be quite radicalized one way or the other, like to understand it instead of just like dismissing something out of hand because it sounds too extreme Right. Um, can can lead to an unwillingness to hear where people are coming from in ways that I think I think that that are required. I mean, yeah, it's required if you're going to get anywhere. (laughs) Yeah. But like it just I mean, I guess I hadn't really until I got to that stage of my of my studies really thought about how deeply influential religion is um, for so many of those historical figures who I think have been transformative in the culture. Part of me, I think for a long time, just wanted to kind of put it in an, another box, right? <laughs> like, yep, yep, right. Um, but again, compartmentalizing is something we're taught to do um, so that we don't have to worry about reconciling the irreconcilable. Yeah. <laughs> just like, oh, that goes in that box over there. Then we don't have to deal with it when we're dealing with this thing over here. And more and more, I was recognizing the areas in which I needed to integrate um, in order to be effective at knew I was meant to do. So yeah, philosophy wise, I, I think I'm, I'm, I wouldn't describe myself as belonging to any particular school of thought, because again, I think that that's the drive to compartmentalize and the drive to name and identify is all about just, just curiosity, just curiosity, right. just, just curiosity. Like my, and my religion is love. 
and my my philosophy is love and my my practice is love i mean that's the theme um of everything and and relationship is about love when i and when i talk about love i think um yeah sometimes people you know the immediate connotation is that kind of fuzzy romantic rush of feeling kind of love and the kind of love i'm talking about is uh what valerie core would call a revolutionary love it's about laboring for a better and i don't not even better a just loving warm welcoming willing world (laughs) you know what i mean like um where everyone understands their connection that doesn't mean there's no conflict ever and conflict is really important to understand as something generative it can be um anyway both conflict with others and within oneself exactly the point of conflict is I think, to generate a different level of understanding, um, a closer connection. And like you were talking about before, humility and willingness to reciprocate, right? If if we're not being in, I I feel like, again, the conflict diverse nature of, of our world, like most people will consider the person raising a question to be causing a problem. (laughs) <laughs> right that's, because, that's kind of like an unspoken in our culture right if you weren't already a named authority if you're the named authority then you're allowed to bring up anything you want and determine the course and you know list all of the things that everyone else needs to do um but if you are not the the acknowledged named authority and you raise your hand and say have you considered x you know then folks will automatically consider that to be some level of disrespect because you're not giving deference to the authority. And this is, again, one of those things that I think is deeply influenced by religion that folks don't necessarily understand the connection. But um, we do have, I think, we have created a lot of structures that are attempting to imitate what many people believe to be the hierarchy of authority from God down. Yeah. So I'm kind of, I'm anti-hierarchy. I believe that there are multiple roles that folks play. And among those would be what we might consider administrative or managerial role, um, or many, depending on the size of whatever endeavor someone's trying to take on or group is trying to take on, there might be multiple managers, right? But Um, that doesn't mean it's automatically a higher level position or a position in which the the manager gets to tell other people what to do without their agreement. Fostering agreement, again, this is kind of, it goes with the conflict thing, like to get to agreement, you need to be willing to wade through some messy stuff. And the distance- That's always done with truth, genuinely, authentically, and in congruence. A hundred percent. So, I mean, I think people are looking for, you know, I think there's, there's quotes in this about the Bible and don't, I'm, I'm sure I'm not quoting it properly, but talking about the straight and narrow, the even, you know, the, like the, that's, that, that path does not really exist. Um, if you are looking to deeply connect and like, it's, it's a, it's a messy word, you know, swerving path that, <laughs> you know, um, and we could get into a whole, I mean, we could talk about this for literally days. Um, but I think there's so many misinterpretations yeah. of those stories back to the literalism of, of certain sects um, and, and groups. The official authority level structures um, to allowing another interpretation of, of these 
you know, sacred, supposedly texts. And um, there's, uh, you know, also the the obvious bias to Western Civ, like anything that came out of Western philosophy is held up um, in a certain way. And of course, it's very selective, just like it is with religion. People will shoot, you know, pick and choose what they want to use to support whatever position they have at any given time. But the, um, you know, the introduction of indigenous uh, philosophy, as it were, like at least the worldview, you know, an ontology of uh, indigenous wisdom and animism, like none of that was introduced in my world, um, you know, until I was either presented with uh, materials from a class or I discovered in my research for a paper or something else, oh, this, there's this. And I always wanted to try to find the lesser known sure. sources. Well, that's where we feel God the most, right? Most of us, yeah. um, you know, I was thinking too about how many folks that I know who are just incredibly driven career-wise and other things, but like all they do is post or write about how they can't wait to go hiking or they can't wait to go to the beach or they can't wait to do this or that. And they've, they've been convinced that in order to earn the rest and the connection that they feel in those natural settings, that they need to just grind themselves into dust every day so they can earn the vacation. It's like, what if you could be there all the time? What is time? What is breath? What is life? (laughs) Right? Like, I mean, the, yes. we, we, we're on these tracks of habitual behavior through messages from our culture that are just not in congruence with what we are and who we are and what we're meant to be doing. And like our right. culture. And I think there is like, when we talk about culture, I want to, I want to clarify a couple things because there is specific, you know, like American culture, but I think worldwide if you're looking at kind of the the core features of culture, there really is one dominant culture at this point. And, you know, it's materialist and it's consumerist and it's power-driven and it's hierarchical. Um, And that exists everywhere that is quote-unquote civilized. Um, And then uh, there's those indigenous communities that still exist and, and those communities that are building now um, based on indigenous principles. And I would say that the, those are like the two main cultures. There's the taker culture, you know, the materialistic, consumeristic, high, um, hierarchical one, taker culture. Um, I'm using Daniel Quinn's terminology here. Yep. And then there's lever culture, which is like, leave it alone. <laughs> like leave, right. leave, leave what is because it's sacred and be in a reciprocal right relationship with all. Um, with honoring and reverence, yeah. with honoring and reverence, understanding that spirit is in everything and it's all connected to us. And when we harm that, which is quote unquote, outside of us, we are harming ourselves. Yeah. Um, that's just a basic tenant. That's re- that's the true law. Um, so yeah, that was another life changer for me is Ishmael by Daniel Quinn and all of his subsequent works. I've read every word Daniel Quinn ever wrote, ever wrote I think, including oh, all of his like obscure little things that he wrote. Um, Cause he's written, he wrote a ton of little parables and stories um, that I think are, are really powerful, but uh, he wrote a number of books and I wrote, I read, I read all of those. I, unfortunately he died a few years back, but I was in touch with his widow. Cause I'm writing a book myself. And I asked her um, 
what, what, you know, if there was a process for getting permission to quote him or to use any of his material um, in my own writing. And she was like, she looked at my blog and then she said, it's clear that you're writing in the spirit of Daniel. So don't worry about it. You know, it's all good. Um, That's wonderful. I I studied anthropology, sociology, all these other things. But when, when people talk about culture in many cases, um, they're using it in a way that is really more about um, fashion or trend or, you know, popular culture versus, um, you know, kind of a way of life. Right. Right. Which is the way I think about culture. So Sarah, in summary, are there, are there things that you'd like, would you like to summarize or some, some like last thoughts or. Well, what I would want to say to the listeners is, um, (laughs) you know, I, I do respect and, and, um, and I, value and honor all of the different ways that people show up in spirituality. And I want to make clear, I mean, I know I sound, you know, sometimes very sure of myself and opinionated about things and whatever. Um, But as I indicated earlier, I think there's so much value in having conversations and um, differing viewpoints to come together and, and grow from that to a higher level of connection and understanding. Um, And so I hope that that's something that the listeners are doing um, in their worlds with their people. Um, and I would definitely invite anyone who is interested um, to connect with me. Um, my blog is called mama Sarah says.com <laughs> uh, with hyphens, you know, and I'm always interested in, in connecting with folks that want to have interesting conversations. I, I have a little surprise for you. Um, I uh I want to close with a with a with a, a closing poem. Ooh, I um, love it. Yeah, and, and are you familiar with Eagle Poem by Joy Harjo? I have heard it. Yes. Yeah, and it goes like this: Eagle Poem. To pray, you open your whole self to sky, to earth, to sun, to moon, to one whole voice that is you. And know there is more that you can't see, can't hear, can't know, except in moments steadily growing and in languages that aren't always sound, but other circles of motion. Like Eagle that Sunday morning over Salt River, circled in blue sky and wind, swept our hearts clean with sacred wings. We see you, see ourselves, and know that we must take the utmost care and kindness in all things. Breathe in, knowing we are made of all this, and breathe, knowing we are blessed because we were born and die soon within a true circle of motion. Like eagle rounding out the morning inside us, we pray that it be done in beauty, in beauty.